Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, once again, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. And if you're joining us online, welcome to you as well. Uh, It is week four of Advent, which means we have just a few more days before Christmas. Raise your hand if you're ready. Raise your hand if all your presents are bought. All right, we'll have the elders and prayer team up front afterwards. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray over you and anoint you with oil if need be, all right? Um, Hey, we are in week four of Advent, like I mentioned, and Advent is a season in our church calendar that's different than Christmas. During uh, Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Christ. During Advent, we posture our souls to once again wait for his coming into our life even now. We've said throughout this series that Advent means arrival, and it's the, it's the expectant waiting, the hopeful anticipation, and the cheerful preparation for God to break into our lives even now. And so I hope that you have a posture of Advent in your soul this morning, that you're ready for God to break in and maybe even to surprise you. Would you turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Isaiah chapter 9. Throughout this Advent season, we've been focusing on a prophecy that was given about Jesus. And it was a prophecy that was given to people who were in a really, really difficult and desperate situation. It was a prophecy of a king who would come and reign, and a king who would make every wrong right. A king who would pierce the darkness with the light of his very presence. And listen to the way that Isaiah began this section. He wrote this, but there will be, say it with me, church, no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time who brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And there was gloom in the nation of Israel, politically, morally, socially, in every way, there was just a sense of of darkness that hovered over their land. But Isaiah continued to write, and he said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a what? A great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And we're calling our series this Advent season radiant because we're exploring the way that God shines great light into immense darkness, not only for the nation of Israel a few hundred years ago, but but also for us today. We're asking God, God, would you shine a light into our darkness? God, would you pierce the darkness in our soul with your radiant light? And the question might be asked, well, how in the world does God bring his light into Darkness. Well, keep reading. Verse 6. Isaiah wrote and said, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Everybody say given. 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 Remember that the son was not earned or produced or deserved. The son is given. As if to say the son is, is just pure grace. Pure grace. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and what? Prince of Peace. What a beautiful name it is. Now the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will, not, not might or could if things go right, but will do this. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And today we're going to talk about the Prince of Peace. Uh, This is a name that from the beginning of his life, Jesus embodies. Even in foretelling his coming, the angels appeared to the shepherds and listened to what they said. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So the coming of Christ was the advent or the arrival of peace. You have his favor, you've got his peace. It was interesting, after Jesus' resurrection, it says on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked. The disciples were all gathered together for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and he stood among his disciples and he said to them, peace be with you. Uh, You can read that whole account in John 20. He he shows them the scars on his hands. He shows them the the, the spear piercing in his side. He tells them that his scars have forgiven all of their sins. And then he breathes on them. Receive my peace. It's interesting. This word peace in the Old Testament was the Hebrew word shalom. Would you say that with me? Shalom. Shalom. And we often think of peace as the absence of war. And indeed, that is a form of peace. But when the Hebrew people talked about shalom, they were talking about something so much deeper and multifaceted and a bit more nuanced than just there are no wars going on. Uh, Listen to the way that Susan Perlman wrote about it. She said, the ancient Hebrew concept of peace rooted in the word shalom meant wholeness or completeness soundness, health, safety, prosperity. And it carried with it the implication of permanence. As if to say God is going to make things whole once and forever more. That picture of shalom, that word shalom, uh, really meant for the Hebrew people that God would return and he would make every single wrong right. Amen? Amen. The Greek word for peace is the word irene. Would you say that with me? Irene. And it means to weave back together frayed parts. It's one of my favorite words in the Bible. Um, Let me paint a picture for you. When I first got into pastoral ministry, I got a a preaching Bible and I absolutely loved this Bible. And I, I marked it up and, and I just, I, I used it a lot, preached out of it a lot. And eventually it came to the point where I'm like, hey, open to the book of Romans, right? And I could pull it out of my Bible. Anybody have a Bible like that? And a buddy of mine said, hey, you know, you can, you can send that to a professional and they can rebind it for you and they can put the pages back into it for you and they can make it as good as new. This was the gateway drug for me into goat skin Bibles. Oh man, the world has never been the same. So I sent it off tattered and torn up and I got it back and it was rebound and beautiful and whole. It's a picture of of peace. The weaving back together of frayed parts. 
And the scriptures say that Jesus is the prince of peace, as if to say he wants to take the the tattered pieces of your soul and he wants to weave them back together into a whole. But I've got a a central question for us today. And it's a question that's, that's haunted me throughout this week. And I hope it doesn't sound irreverent to you, but I'm going to ask the question at fear that it might. Here's my question. Has Jesus failed as the Prince of Peace? Now, before you say no, because that's the church answer, can we just sit with the question for a moment? Has Jesus failed as the Prince of Peace? There was a journalist, Chris Hedges, who did a research project a number of years ago. And he went and he looked at every single year and he tried to decide, has this been a year without war? He defined war as active conflict that claimed more than a thousand lives. He reviewed 3,400 years of history. And in it, his research project, he found that only 268 years of the past 3,400 have been absent from war. 92% of history has been plagued with war. So let me ask you again. Has Jesus failed as the prince of peace? It's that longing that caused Henry Wadsworth Longfellow to write a poem on Christmas Day in 1863. Uh, See, his wife's dress had caught on fire and she had burned alive. He had six kids. He was a single dad now. He sent one of those kids off to war and his son was shot in the back. And he heard the bells ringing on Christmas day and they haunted him. Peace on earth? what, What kind of peace is this? He wrote that great hymn, I heard the bells on Christmas day and in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Anybody been there? God, come on. God, come and reign. You're You're the prince of peace. Why does the world look the way that it looks? He went on to write in the very last verse of that carol, and he said, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. As if to say, there were bells that were ringing that were stronger than the church bells ringing in Cambridge that day. There were bells that were ringing in his soul that were deeper. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail eventually. The right will prevail eventually with peace on earth, good will to men. And I think that so adequately captures the echo in so many human hearts. Shalom, like Prince of Peace, come reign and weave back together our frayed parts. I mean, we long for the Prince of Peace to come and reign, don't we? But I think if we're honest, the peace that Jesus wants to bring is just as elusive inside of us as it is outside of us. Because we can do a survey of 3,400 years of history and go, not a lot of peace, but my guess is if we sat down over a cup of coffee, you might say the same thing about your own life. Not a lot of peace. A lot of anxiety, a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot, a lot of, fill in the blank, but gosh, 
not sure that there's a lot of peace. Even just this week, I've walked with families in our own church who have lost loved ones, who've got cancer diagnoses. I've read an article this week that said that suicide is now the second leading cause of death for kids 10 to 18 years old in the U.S. This this ought to break our hearts. And I'm, I'm guessing it probably does. We understand that war within. So has Jesus failed as the Prince of Peace? Don't answer it too quick. And and I want us to engage two uh, truths this morning. And they may seem like a paradox. So please push in, wrestle with it. On, On one level, we live in a world that's plagued with genuine pain and trouble and war. And God doesn't ask us to bury our head in the sand or hide the pain of life, from the pain of life. He invites us to engage it head on. God always meets us in reality, not in a fantasy. That's one truth. But paradoxically, we also would affirm that Jesus is our peace. I love the way that the great theologian Fleming Rutledge puts it. She says, Advent begins in the dark. Meaning that that God meets us in those moments of hurt and pain and sorrow and darkness. And that's the very place where he starts to breathe his life and his freshness and his redemption and his peace. See, he is our peace, not by numbing us, but by forgiving us and healing us and enfolding us into his love and his life. See, even in the darkness and the doubt, Jesus would look at us and he would say, and he's saying to you this morning, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not let your hearts be troubled. By connecting us to God, he's connecting us to shalom. He's connecting us to peace. And my prayer for us is that we would recognize that the light of Christmas shines through the peace of Jesus. That the light of Christmas shines through the peace of Jesus. But like I said, I think if we're honest, a lot of us would go, I believe that in my head, but gosh, I have a hard time experiencing that in my life. Is anybody with me? I believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And yet, and yet, our world is a world at war. And if I'm honest, my heart sometimes feels the same way. So my question is, How do we invite this Prince of Peace to come and reign in us in a fresh way this Advent season? I'm so glad you asked that because the Apostle Paul actually gives us a pathway to peace. He he invites us to engage with God as he reigns as the Prince of Peace. And let me show you where he does that. If you have your Bible with you, flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse four. And like I said, this is really practical. It's just Paul saying, you want the Prince of Peace to reign in your life? Here's what it looks like. Here's how to step into that relationship and his presence where he starts to weave together the frayed pieces of our lives. Listen to what he said. He wrote, ah, this is too good to say alone. Would you just say it with me, church? He wrote, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Always. So not rejoice when you're joyful 
or rejoice when things go the way that you want them to or rejoice when the world is as it should be in your mind, but rejoice always. I will say it again. He says, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, or some translations will say your gentleness, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is a great Advent text, is it not? God is present, just waiting to break in to our lives at any moment. The Lord is at hand. Do not be, say it with me, anxious about anything. Now, now let's just hit pause right there. This word anxious in the Greek is the word merimnao, and it literally means to be divided into parts or to be pulled apart. So catch this. It's the opposite side of the coin of peace. Peace weaves us back together. Anxiety pulls us apart. Have any of you ever experienced that? Those thought monkeys in your mind that just dance around. God, I I trust you, but I know I've got to do this on my own. Or God, I, I believe that you can take care of this, but I also believe that I need to take care of it myself. And I'm not just not sure how that situation is going to turn out or that diagnosis is going to play out or how are we going to make ends meet? And our minds start to get divided, don't they? And Paul makes this statement. Do not be anxious about anything. And I just want to have a conversation with Paul and go, like, we can't be anxious about anything, Paul. Like, Paul, have you heard about pandemics? (laughs) Have you heard about political division? Have you heard about relational strife? Hey, Paul, there's this thing that we call sickness and sometimes it ends in death. Have you heard about that? And I think Paul would look back at us and go, I'm writing in the Roman Empire. We have all of those things in spades. And I said, be anxious about nothing. Nothing. It seems at best blissfully ignorant and at worst a bit insensitive. Because don't we just want to push back and go, you don't know my situation. If you did, you might give me a footnote that says, unless you're Ryan Paulson and you're walking through this, right? He says, be anxious about nothing or don't be anxious about anything. This, this, this command seems to, and it is a command, by the way. It is, it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Seems to grate against so much of our reality, doesn't it? There was this cardiologist, his name is Dr. Meyer Friedman, and he ran a, um, a cardiology practice in San Francisco a number of years ago. And he took the cushions from the seats in his waiting room in to be reupholstered. And the professional who was doing the reupholstering came back to him and said, um, Dr. Friedman, there's something really interesting about the chairs in your waiting room. He said, in most of the reupholstery work that I do, I see the wear and tear in the middle of the seat. But in your office, all of the chairs are worn in the very front. And he said, and the sides of the arms on the front are worn also. And it was this picture of people in a cardiology waiting room going, 
Is it my turn yet? No? Okay. And I wonder if it's a picture of a lot of us too. I wonder if a lot of us are on the edge of our seat going, I'm not, I'm not sure how this situation is going to turn out. I'm not, I'm not sure how this wrong is going to be made right. There, there was um, research done from November 2nd to November 14th. They did a study of adults in the U.S. and they found that 31% of adults in the U.S. struggle right now with anxiety. We're sort of front of the chair people, aren't we? Like with all of the developments that we've made in our world, doesn't it just seem like they amplify the anxiety and the anxious thoughts that exist in our head and in our heart? So here's my question. I wonder if this morning that Jesus might be inviting us to open our hands and our hearts a little bit so that the Prince of Peace can come and reign. Not just in a way where we believe he's the Prince of Peace, but but in a way where we... Where we experience his peace. where, Where he weaves back together some of the frayed parts of our soul. And and that's exactly where the apostle Paul wants to lead the Philippian believers. He doesn't just want them to know it and affirm it. He wants them to experience it. So listen to what he writes. Listen to what he says. He says, but in everything, how, how many things? Everything. I'm struck by the fact that Paul says rejoice Always. Now, you don't have to rejoice because of everything, but you can rejoice in everything. And then he says, and in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request. Or sorry, that's NIV. Make your request known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So so what's the first way that we go from a posture of edge of our seat anxiety to back of our seat peace? Here's what Paul says. Develop a response of prayer. And, And he says it in three different ways. I don't know if you caught it. First, he said by prayer, which is a very general way of talking about talking to God. Then he says supplication, which is a way of talking about bringing our felt needs. God, you know I need this. Will you please show up? And then he says, making our requests known to God. He wants to make it really, really clear that when we sense that divided mind, those anxious thoughts coming into our head, he wants our immediate response to be, I'm going to run to my heavenly father. Why? Why? Well, there's a few things that come to my mind. Number one, when we run to God, we are reminded that he isn't just the Prince of Peace. He's also the mighty God. He can can do something about what's going on in our life. His hands are not tied. Psalm 115 verse three says that nothing is impossible for him. He can do whatever he wants. So when we run to him, we're reminded of that. But the other thing we're reminded of is, gosh, I don't know about you, but I live so much of my life feeling like I have to control the things around me. If it's gonna go right, I've gotta do it. Anybody with me? My guess is if you're with me, the front of your seat is a little bit worn too, right? But when we say back to God, God, 
here's my request. What we get to do is we get to sit back and we get to go, God, I recognize I am not in control. And so much of the root of our worry is the fact that we have, feel like we have to control. I'm not in control. You are. And we get to practice what Jesus preached and taught in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? He's going, if, if Jesus were Dr. Phil, he would say to us, anxious, huh? How's that working out for you? The irony of what Jesus said is not only can being anxious about something not add a single hour to your life, it can actually subtract hours from your life. But I think that there's another dynamic too. How many of you have been anxious about something that never happened? Yeah, me too. There is this Renaissance philosopher and he said, my life has been a series of disasters, most of which never took place. He's right. Hey, maybe do an experiment sometime. Write down the things that you're anxious about. And then in a month or two months, go back and see which ones of them actually took place. And maybe we're anxious about a lot of things that just aren't going to happen. But I think, I think, I think the heart of what Paul is saying is he wants us to have the kind of relationship with God where we can cast, as Peter would write to the churches, all, not some, but all all our anxieties. That means you don't need to hold on to the ones that are in your life because of your bad decisions. That means that you don't have to sort of do a penance with God and feel like, okay, well, God, you're going to punish me and I've got to be anxious about this. No, you can cast them all on him. Why? Well, because he cares for you. Here, I don't know if you do this, but here's what I do. God, I'm casting all of my cares on you. Oh, that feels so good. But I, I wonder how you're going to work that one out. And I'm not sure if you're moving on my timeline. Is God too slow for anybody else? And, and maybe, just maybe, and then all of a sudden, what I've casted, I'm carrying again. And I wonder if God would have us today go, okay, maybe what we cast, we really do need to release so that he can carry it instead of us carrying it. The apostle Paul, he snuck this word into his admonition to the church when he said, casting all of your anxieties on him with prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, with thanksgiving. Which is a strange thing to add in when he's calling on people to bring their anxieties and their troubles and all the things that are going wrong in their life. And it seems like you can either come to God with anxiety or you can come to God with thanksgiving, but maybe you can't come to God with both. And Paul goes, oh, no, 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 no. When you bring your anxious thoughts to God, you also need to weave into those anxious thoughts thanksgiving. And what will start to happen is those anxieties will start to get overwhelmed by the posture of gratitude that's taking place in your soul. Did you know, that what Paul's writing about is actually has, has been proven now by neuroscience in our day and age that being grateful actually starts to chart new courses, new mental maps in your brain. And what 
neuroscience would say today is that you can either be actively grateful or you can be actively anxious, but you can't be both. Don't you love it when science proves scripture? And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Come to God, bring your anxiety, but also bring your thanksgiving. And as you're thankful, something will start to happen in your heart and your soul where you will move from a posture of anxiety, front of the seat to back of the seat, trust. There was a a neuroscientist, his name is Dr. Baker, and he did a project and research on this a number of years ago. And what he found was that he said, the fact of neurology is that the brain cannot be in a state of appreciation and a state of fear at the same time. Those two states may alternate, but they are mutually exclusive. Let Let me just boil it down like this. Practicing gratitude really can change your life. It really can change your life. And so Paul's command to the church is, gosh, don't just, don't just develop a response of prayer, but cultivate a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of gratitude. And I love the way that he would say, he gives this promise that just seems so cosmic at the end of this. And so absolute, he says, and the peace of God, And followers of Jesus have often talked about the peace that we receive from God internally and the peace that we have with God positionally. Both are true. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's saying. You practice prayer, you practice gratitude, and what starts to happen is you sit back in the seat, trusting that God is good, that he cares for you, that he sees you, that he's powerful, and then an overwhelming peace starts to envelop your being. How many of you have experienced that? I really like that he says it surpasses understanding. Because if you've ever tried to explain that peace, it's sort of hard to quantify, isn't it? Yeah, we got the diagnosis, but we also got peace. Yeah, we, we got the pink slip, we also got peace. Like the, the, phone, the phone didn't ring. We still got peace. Gosh, I don't know how that situation's going to turn out, but still got peace. I don't, I don't know. I've often thought that that kind of peace is sort of a cop-out. Like, I want to know why I have peace. I, I want my peace to be logical. Is anybody with me? Like, I have peace because I believe that this is going to turn out in a certain way and everything's going to work out the way I want it to. That's why I have peace. And what Paul's saying is, maybe that's not the way that peace from Jesus works. Maybe peace from Jesus blows up all of our categories and we can say, gosh, I don't know why, but I'm okay. And I'm not sure where you're at today, but I'm confident that that's the kind of peace Jesus wants you to have. 
And if you have it and you can't explain it, that's okay too. Listen to the way that Paul continued. He wrote this and he said, finally, brothers, whatever is true. Would you just say whatever with me? Whatever. Can we just say it in our best like um, valley girl voice? Like whatever, right? Okay, okay. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I read it emphatically because it is a command. Paul is commanding his pe- the, the people of God to think about these things. Things In the King James, it's fix your thoughts on them. In the NAS, it's dwell on these things. And throughout the scriptures, the scriptures are clear that you can direct your thought life. And that the way that you direct your thought life will shape the rest of your life. It's the reason that Paul wrote to the churches and he would say in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind. It's why he wrote to the church in Colossae and said, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. We could even use the word meditate, meditate. And I know for some of us, we're like, well, that's sort of an Eastern philosophical idea. Uh, Not really. The scriptures talk about meditation all the time, and it's different than it is in Eastern philosophies. In Eastern philosophies, meditation is often seen as emptying our minds, In Judeo-Christian thought, meditation is filling our minds. So fill your minds with what's good, what's noble, what's lovely, what's pure, what's true. Fill your mind with those things because what you fill your mind with determines the peace that you experience. I love the way that Jonathan Edwards put it when he said, the ideas and images in men's minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern them. He's right. And focused thinking can help us with peaceful living. Or we might say it like this. What you magnify in your mind, you will multiply in your life. What you magnify in your mind, you will multiply in your life. So Paul will say, you want to be a non-anxious presence in the world? Think about these things. So we walk the path of peace and we live with the Prince of Peace reigning in our life when we develop a response of prayer, when we cultivate a spirit of gratitude, and when we focus our mind on good. But let's be honest. This isn't easy, is it? I will point out that the reason Paul has to command us to do this is because it doesn't come naturally. Like if the point of the scriptures was focus on bitterness, focus on all the craziness, the chaos, the war, focus on how bad things are, we wouldn't need any command for that, would we? We'd all be like, stuck that dismount, (laughs) nailed it every time. And this is pretty hard when we turn on the 24-hour news stations. Like how much of that is pure and lovely and good? Like you, you swipe through your Instagram account or whatever you're on and how much of that fits the bill of what Paul is talking about? Not a whole lot. And I think some of us are even tempted to go, it's not out there. 
What Paul writes about, not out there. The good, pure, lovely, honorable, commendable doesn't exist anymore. And what I wanna say to you as graciously and pastorally as I can, you're just not looking in the right places. You're not listening to the right voices. What you magnify in your mind will be multiplied in your life. And there's a reason that we've inundated ourselves with outrage media and what we see is outrage lives. So what if we actually took Paul to task? I love that he uses this word, whatever, as if to say, you might find these things in a lot of unexpected places. Let, let, me, let me share with you two places that I've seen the um, character and beauty of God on display just this weekend, just here. Pretty small sample size. On Friday, we had our uh, preschool Christmas concerts. 120 kids singing about the birth of Jesus. If that doesn't fill your heart with joy, you are the Grinch. (laughs) And Paul would say, well, whatever's pure, that's pure. Like, think on that. Soak that in. Last night, um, we hosted the Snowball Bash, an outreach to foster and adoptive families. There was 480 guests on our campus. There was 180 volunteers who made that night possible. There was people who experienced the love of Jesus. There were kids who got Christmas presents. This place was filled with love. That is just, it's commendable. It's righteous, it's good. And my guess is that if you really thought about it, you really thought about it, there would be these glimmers of light in your life too. And when we start to think about them, what happens in our life is we go from edge of the seat, everything's going downhill. These just aren't like the good old days. To, all right, God's still at work, even now. And every good and perfect thing comes from him. So whatever, wherever, these things show up, I'm going to dwell on them. I'm gonna let them sink into my soul. See, the truth of the matter is, friends, we don't get to choose what world we live in, but we get, do get to choose how we live in the world. And I think Jesus might be inviting us to live with a little bit more wonder, to live with a little bit more discernment, to look for the good and then to allow it to sink into our minds and into our hearts and into our being so that that's what comes out of our life. Paul says this in closing. He says, whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. And I'm struck by this fact that Paul doesn't say, if you believe in Jesus, the peace of God will be with you. He says, no, practice these things practice prayer and petition, practice gratitude, practice dwelling on these things. Like really do it. Just believing it isn't enough. Put it into practice. And then what will happen? The God of peace will be with you. What a beautiful picture. So so maybe just maybe if you were this week, if you were to just say, I'm gonna do an experiment. And I've got like a lot of edge of my seat situations in my life. 
And God, I'm just gonna start my day. Maybe just five minutes. I'm gonna start my day thinking about a few things that I'm grateful for and a few places that I've seen good over the last few days. Or or maybe you would say, gosh, I just, I wanna start writing out some of my prayers because I wanna really cast them and, and maybe writing them down is a good way to get them off of my heart and out of my head and to say back to God, it's yours, not mine. And I, what I've casted, I don't wanna carry. Or maybe you would do something over the next few days as we lead up to Christmas that the ancients did. It's called fixed hour prayer. A lot of the people of God still do this. You could just set the alarm on your watch uh, for three times during the day. Set it for nine, set it for noon, set it for three. And when it goes off, just spend some time just praying. It's a way to remind yourself that you live in the presence of God. And my guess is what'll start to happen is that you'll start to be able to lean back and you'll start to be able to trust and you'll start to be able to say back to Jesus, Prince of Peace, reign in me. Reign in me. I love that this passage starts off in verse six. It says that we will get the peace of God And then verse nine says, oh, even better than that, you get the God of peace. He shows up in your life. And my prayer for you, for me, for us has been that this Christmas, we don't just celebrate the birth of Christ, but that we receive together the peace of Jesus. He still is the Prince of Peace. And he's saying to you and to me, if you practice these things, you will experience my reign of peace, my weaving back together of frayed parts in your life. How many of you want that this Christmas? Me too, me too. So I'd invite you to just put your things away. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to scoot to the edge of your seat. Be careful, don't scoot too far. If you fall off, the seat will pop up. And oh, man. We don't want that, we don't want that. Would you just scoot to the edge of your seat and as a way to symbolically say, God, I've got some things that are bouncing around in my heart that are causing me to be anxious. Would you just name those things today? Not out loud, but just to God. Maybe there's relational strife that's going on and you're going, I just don't know how this is gonna work out. Maybe a child that's wandered away and you're not sure if this Christmas you're even gonna get to talk to him. Maybe the just financial state of the world is an edge of the seed experience for you right now. Would you just bring that before God? (sighs) 
So Jesus, we would come before you today and remind our hearts that you are the Prince of Peace. That you're the kind of ruler who weaves back together the frayed parts of our soul. And in all the areas that we're divided and all the areas that we're doubting and all of the areas where we're wondering how in the world is that situation gonna work itself out in all of the ways that we're anxious, we would invite you come and reign. So we'll cast our anxiety on you. We'll remember to be thankful, grateful people. And God, wherever and whatever and however we see good, we're gonna dwell on it. And as we do that, we ask that you'd reign. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.